Hello and welcome back to My Love Letter Time Machine, a podcast where we are discovering the Victorian love story told through the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton, who were courting in the 1880s. I'm Ingrid Birchall-Hughes and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter. And this time we'll be looking at how Fred and Jane got caught up in the general election of 1880 and then catching up with a friend in Oxford. But first, we'll be finding out if Janie had popped the question. I've been struck again and again by the contrast between the bigger historical landscape going on around Janie and Fred compared with the more intimate details of their lives. 1880 is a rather fragmented year to put together in Fred and Jane's story, as Fred's diary eventually sputters out in May, and I have very few letters from this year. In the world at large, electric light was continuing its advance into public spaces, but life expectancy was still only half that of what it is now. Benjamin Disraeli was Prime Minister until William Gladstone defeated him in the April election and it offers a perfect example of how wider events touch ordinary people, as Fred and Jane were both, in different ways, affected by that year's general election. But first, back to Fred's diary. In February 1880, Fred gave Jane the traditional gift of a pair of gloves on Valentine's Day, and she gave to him a card and a pen. Fascinatingly, on the 29th of February, a day with the long-standing and now somewhat dubious tradition of women getting a turn to propose to men, the discussion of marriage pops up. February 29th, Sunday. Had a very serious talk with Janie about my affairs. Told her that at present I had only 28 shillings per week and that I expected I should be 25 years old before I could comfortably marry her. She said she would gladly wait for me. When I first noticed the date, I suddenly wondered if Janie had popped the question, or perhaps, if not a full-blown proposal of marriage. Maybe the date emboldened her to go fishing for Fred's intentions. Fred is 21, and Jane has just declared a willingness to wait for Fred for four years. Is this an engagement? Or is this what used to be known as an understanding? Whatever it is, Janie and Fred are trying to figure out their futures together. It is also a far better Valentine season than the one they had last year, which you might remember was blighted by that vinegar Valentine. I have to say, though, I'm loving Jane so much, even though I don't have much of her writing for the first couple of years of their courtship. Her actions speak volumes, and as much as the times allow... She is trying to be the architect of her own future. She sees something special in Fred, and she believes it is worth nurturing. However, with Fred wondering exactly how much he can expect for himself and his future with Janie, the very next day, he had what must have been an encouraging encounter. Although not eligible to vote, he took a keen interest in politics and will go to listen to candidates electioneering. On the 1st of March, 1880, he went to see Samuel Plimsoll, MP for Derby, the sailor's friend, speak at the Cutler's Hall in Sheffield. (music) 
Pete from Cumbria, when he was still young, Samuel Plimsoll and his family had moved to Sheffield and Plimsoll was a local boy made good and a shining example of a self-educated man who had gone to morning and evening classes at the People's College in Sheffield before going on to become a clerk, an inventor, a millionaire, a philanthropist and eventually an MP. He was everything good about a self-made Victorian gentleman. Plimsoll was the inventor and political advocate of the famous Plimsoll Line that prevented dangerous overloading of boats and ships, and his activism must have potentially saved many thousands of lives. His campaign to prevent lives being sacrificed for profit focused on a worse malpractice even than that of dangerous overloading, which was an insurance scam by which rotten ships were bought up and repainted or renamed, then overinsured and sent out to their lucrative doom. Ship owners would pocket the insurance money if the ships went down. In 1871, a Board of Trade report said that 856 ships went down within 10 miles off the coast of Great Britain in conditions that were no worse than a strong breeze, and it was thought that between 500 and 1,000 sailors needlessly lost their lives every year. Plimsoll's campaign to overturn corruption and get his legislation through Parliament took 20 years, subjected him to 13 libel cases, cost him his house, and it made him a national hero. Looking back over what I know so far of Fred's life, I think deep in his heart, he nurtured aspirations. The events that were to set him on a loftier path and eventually give him the means to marry Janie were still more than a year away but I can see how much Fred would have been inspired and encouraged by a man like Samuel Plimsoll. He may have seen something of himself in Plimsoll's beginnings, taking advantage of adult education, the very education that Plimsoll himself had undertaken. Incidentally, Janie would not have been spared involvement in that year's general election, as on the 20th of March, the Conservative candidates for the South West Riding of Yorkshire, Mrs Stanhope and Starkey, on their electioneering tour of the constituency, held a public meeting outside the Cross Keys in Handsworth, presided over by the local vicar, Reverend Mowat. According to the newspaper report, a wooden platform had been erected opposite the Cross Keys, and it was from this that Stanhope gave his address and answered questions and asked for a renewal of confidence to return him to his seat in the forthcoming election. According to the local newspaper, he spoke at length about the Eastern question, which was the geopolitical concern of the day regarding the demise of the Ottoman Empire and the threatened expansion of Russia. He then went on to try and convince the assembled company that the depressions in jobs and wages that had been seen in the area were caused by the mismanagement of the previous Liberal government and that Yorkshiremen understood the truth of supply and demand, which apparently resulted in cheering. Questions came up about the new burial laws, the enclosure of Morby Common, and the laws concerning the opening of public houses. Stanhope assured everyone that he would not vote for Sunday closing, because that would interfere with the rights of the poor man to get his beer fresh on the Sunday. No doubt, after this, many of the onlookers would have made their way into the cross keys for refreshment, and Janie would have been rushed off her feet waiting on them all, 
In fact, on the day before, she writes to Fred to say that she will be unable to go to a dance because her father's back was very bad. Imagining James Warburton trying to be a proper host with that kind of event going on and with a bad back sounds pretty rough, to be frank. As a side note, if you're interested in the results of the election, Stanhope and Starkey did not retain their seats and the Conservative government had to give way to the Liberals. Samuel Plimsoll was re-elected with a large majority, but as was the political system at the time, later voluntarily retired, giving up his seat so that William Harcourt could be MP for Derby and thus continue his cabinet post as Home Secretary and ensure that sailors' interests could be more effectively advanced. In the meantime, Fred got to watch one of his closest friends going up in the world, who had landed a scholarship to Colum College in Abingdon, not far from Oxford, to train as a schoolmaster. Fred Johnson was one of Fred's adult education friends, and at the time it seems they were fairly close. He was the son of a grocer, and the younger brother of Fred and Janie's mutual friend, Annie Johnson, who had acted as a go-between in the ostentatious swapping of photographs the previous September. Of the sparse numbers of letters I have for 1880, the lion's share of them are actually Johnson's letters to Fred during term time. I'm sure that to begin with, Fred would have been delighted that Johnson's hard work had paid off. But Johnson's letters to Fred, to my mind at least, have a little bit of an edge to them that I feel slightly uncomfortable about. Established in 1852 by Samuel Wilberforce, Bishop of Oxford, Cullum College was a teacher training college. The Gothic Revival architect Joseph Clark had designed its buildings and has since been described as institutional Victorian Gothic at its grimmest. The culture of the institution of that time sounds rather grim too. In his letter to Fred, Johnson's description and evident relish in the bullying of his fellow students is difficult to read. Also, his judgment of his peers back home is a little harsh and smacks a bit of privilege. A grocer's son perhaps only had a few more advantages over most of the steel factory fodder back in Attercliffe, but I don't think Johnson has been much acquainted with working to exhaustion. In all of our Fred's letters, the only time he is critical and judgmental of others is if the person or people in question are unfair, impolite or unkind. I just can't imagine Fred approving of Johnson's attitudes. Anyway, see what you think. Here's Johnson's letter of the 8th of March, 1880. Dear Fred, you were a long time answering my letter. When reply did come, it was very welcome. I have not time to write such long epistles, so I hope you will not cut yours short if I only happen to send four sides. Tell Ted, if you happen to see him, that I will try and write him during the coming week. I do wish you had won the game. Arthur wrote and told me Beardshaw had played better than he had ever done before. Should have liked to have seen the Glasgow match. It would have been exciting. I thought Gregory had fallen off a good deal when we had played Hallam. I expect by next year we shall be having you in some of the matches. At least I hope so. It is time another secretary was elected. I think it will be a shame to let the club go on as it is doing. Hope it will not come to the same end as the cricket club. Yesterday we played the best match we have had. The fellows played splendidly. They came from a place close to Oxford. 
One fellow in particular could run. It was a treat. I had a going goal. Half time nearly had my nasal organ broken and my calf muscle kicked from under my knee. Oh, it was scrupulous, limping out like a lame dog. Two juniors played in the match and a fellow from Manchester. When we went into the lecture room, they did cheer and clap. I have not grown quite homesick yet, though I should like to come over at Easter very much, but it is so far. Takes two days travelling. The fellows here, taking them all together, are proper. There are two or three cads among them. They do get sat on properly by juniors and seniors. If a fellow goes too far, they rights him, i.e. they get caps or cushions and let go into the fellow. Tis a treat. The fellow gets his head really knocked up. There is a Londoner in our dormitory. He does get sat on properly. They rights them upstairs with knotted towels dipped in water. The fellow that I have principally dropped in with is a proper little chap, not chums yet. Ridgely told me about him before I came, so he managed an apology for an introduction. They call him Tom Watcham. I don't think we shall ever forget each other. I think we know each other too well to separate. I do wish you were here, old fellow. It would be proper. It seems the fellows in Attercliffe still have their two aims in life, work and sleep. They are a lot of consummate duffers. They seem quite unable to realise that Mr H's splendid lessons will do them good. I don't think, nay, I am sure that all the fellows who do attend don't take much interest in the class, or they would invite and bring others, but it is the same with everything they do. They make any number of promises, but as for keeping them, why? Scarcely an idea seems to take their heads. They have not much real honour in them, I think. I think you are one of the luckiest fellows in creation. You seem to be able to see Janie at any time. I only wish I could see Jessie. Thank, kiss her kindly, for remembering me. Don't forget what Shakespeare says, the course of true love never did run smooth. So mind you are always on the lookout for those little clouds which seem to come in everybody's life. I hope, however, that these silvery-lined ones may never be broken for you both. I think you have found what these fellows often talk of, your flame of flames. I hear every once-only week from Jessie, every Wednesday morning. She is coming over, I mean home, at Easter. We have today's recess, but she'll not go home. It is not worth the trouble, I think. And another thing, tis rather an expensive journey. During Easter week, I hope to see all the beauties of this neighbourhood. As yet, the country is too flooded to go far. The Thames has overflowed its banks and country underwater for miles. Have seen the Oxford crew. They are a fine set of fellows. They almost make the boat fly. Went to Oxford last week. The buildings are grand college after grand college. It seems to be all colleges. I have not time to tell you anything I saw, so must defer until some future occasion. This is the fifth time I have sat down to finish this letter. Remember me to Arthur and your mother, also Ted Hughes. Thanking you kindly for your good wishes, hoping you are quite well. Your sincere friend, Fred. I would love to know what Fred thought of that letter. Reading between Johnson's lines, it appears that our Fred must have written that he was worried for his and Johnson's friendship now that Johnson had moved to Oxford. Fred must be missing him. Judging by Johnson's envy, our Fred must also have mentioned seeing Janie 
and possibly talking about the depth of his feelings for her, feelings that seemed to be reflected in the generous gift that he gave to her for her birthday. Wednesday, April the 14th, Janie's birthday. She is 20 years old, and the sweetest and nicest girl in the world, I think, presented her with a lady's companion. Priced at a shilling, the cost of six pints of beer, the well-illustrated lady's companion was a seriously luxury magazine. When you consider that a lot of the cheaper women's publications were priced at a penny, Fred had really splashed out here. Women's magazines increased in popularity through the 1800s, reflecting aspirations and social changes. As the century progressed, publications aimed at women developed from the middle-class drawing room periodicals of the 1830s and 40s to the cheaper, chattier, more domestic magazines of the 1880s and 1890s. The Ladies' Companion, its full title, an illustrated monthly magazine of the fashions, interesting facts and select fiction, was somewhere in the middle of the pack. It contained a mix of gossip, short stories and brightly coloured illustrations of the latest clothing styles. While Parisian couture would not have been accessible to buy for someone like Janie, the advent of the sewing machine, dyeing technology and affordable fabrics would have put her interpretations of the pictures she saw within reach. Janie was often in demand by her family and friends to make clothes, on one occasion being asked to make a wedding dress for her friend, and I imagine she would have been utterly delighted by Fred's gift and devoured every page. Fred, despite his generous gift, seems to vacillate between worrying about money and perhaps being a bit extravagant. If Johnson's remarks in his next letter are based on fairness, it looks like Fred has serious intentions to marry Janie someday, but must have wondered what would become of her and what she would do if anything were to happen to him. Johnson writes, Do you remember how it used to hurt my dignity, you or anyone offering to pay for anything? I never did like such a plan, and never shall. I believe in every man doing as Bobby Burns, standing on his own bottom. Tis all very well paying for just a little, but pennies make pounds, which are often rather scarce. But this is looking at it, you will say, from a selfish point of view, rather so. I turn to the one you mention. Tis a rather queer subject to touch, yet one may do so with safety, I think in our case. Supposing you and Janie were married, and you were suddenly taken from her, what would she do? There is only to live and work and put by, in case of such calamities. As for turning over a new leaf, I think you will find it a rather difficult thing to do, but perseverance overcomes all difficulties. You will find that you will be able to enjoy yourself quite, if not better, without being so extravagant. I wish I could work out what this turning over a new leaf that Fred has decided upon was about. Johnson goes on. It seems very strange our so often thinking and feeling the same thing. Yet I have many times noticed it before. I have wanted several times to write to you about religion, yet could not touch the subject at all. It seems too sacred, too deep, too fathomless to touch. I often felt, as you describe, the feeling of being wicked and yet unable to rouse myself from the sensation until at last it has crept over me 
the half-satisfying satisfaction that I am not so bad after all. Yes, I know that this is far from real, for I do not feel at rest. I remember well a walk I had from Sheffield by myself last Christmas. I experienced a little then, a little of the bitterness of failure. Oh, I found a turn over a new leaf. I cannot tell you what I thought or felt, but I still think I am as bad, if not worse than ever. I do sincerely hope that the feeling which has come over us so strangely, we may, as you say, leave us better as men. You turning over a new leaf reminds me forcibly of a sermon that spoke of the good resolutions we were apt to form upon entering some new stage of life and the difficulty of keeping them. How that in bidding old influences for evil goodbye, we were apt to be drawn back. You remember the words, no doubt, no man having put his hand to the plough, etc. Fred, you have not one fiftieth part to put up with what I have, but you have more than I, a sympathiser to whom you can go at any time for consolation. It seems Janie is the only means of keeping you within bounds, yet I am afraid in your hastiness something unpleasant will occur unless you be less independent. As Gower used to say, penny wise and pound foolish. Johnson then goes on to encourage Fred to keep trying, with a determination which you are not lacking, and encloses a poem and a Bible verse in the hope of offering comfort. He finishes his letter with a quotation from American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Not enjoyment and not sorrow is our destined end anyway, but to act that each tomorrow find us further than today. Johnson, I think, obviously knows our Fred's melancholic mitherings of old, and I am touched to see him try to be comforting here, even if it seems a little hectoring to my eyes. I'm struck by the emotional intimacy that Johnson and our friend evidently have shared. They are obviously really fond of each other, and feel free to express that they miss each other, such as, I think we know each other too well to separate, and remarking that they both so often think and feel the same thing. But I think I can also imagine that Fred might roll his eyes at the amount of financial advice Johnson feels that he should impart. He wasn't particularly happy when Johnson's sister was going on about Fred's spending, so to have his friend continue in this vein might have been irksome. I'm curious to work out if Fred was a bit careless with money, or if the Johnsons were being overcritical. There is a touch of foreshadowing going on here as well, as in the event Fred would eventually predeceased Janie. But as Johnson quite rightly said, we can only live and work and put by in case of such calamities. And so we come to the very last entries in Fred's diary. May 16th, 1880, Whit Sunday, my 21st birthday. Janie sent me a beautiful pair of slippers, had a delightful walk with her in the afternoon and the evening. May 17th, Monday, went with Janie to a picnic at Rochabby. 
the weather was everything that could be desired. May the 18th, Tuesday, went to workshop to play at cricket with Darnell Club. We lost. May 20th, Thursday, Janie went to Sheffield. I met her at Darnell Station and went home with her. Mrs Warburton was very cordial. Had a long walk and a long talk with Janie. It seems that her sister Emma, who is not of the most charitable disposition, is in the habit of saying disagreeable things to her, such as she would not have everything to match, and she would not know how to go on when married, and that she did not know how to manage a house, to which made Janie quite uncomfortable. I assured her that I had perfect confidence in her, and that I felt convinced that she would do all in her power to promote our mutual happiness. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. We'll be back next time when we go on another holiday with Fred to Blackpool. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my Love Letter Time Machine, all one word, or on the blog mydarlingjanie.co.uk. And if you'd like to write to me, you can at mylovelettertimemachine at gmail.com. Take care and have a great week. <laughs>